Our scripture lesson is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and to all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to God. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance But one who is coming is more powerful than I, is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize, excuse me, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O Lord, our rock, our strength, our redeemer. Amen. I confessed on Wednesday to the Bible study that I'm a package shaker. (laughs) Ask my poor husband, I'm a relentless beggar for hints of the store in which the present was purchased. I guess out loud and I torture that poor man to open just one on Christmas Eve, one little one. I'm one of those people who just loves the anticipation around Christmas. I love the lights. I love the smell of the Christmas tree. I pray for snow on Christmas. I love the Grinch the old one. And I love the old, sappy, happily ever after Christmas movies. 
Now, you may not be a package shaker, but I'm guessing you too long for the break or the, the lift this season lends to our overall mood and expectation. Aren't we a little bit more inclined to be kinder, a bit more playful, a little more generous? Some of us have had great losses or carried great burdens. And no amount of the usual celebration is going to make Christmas easier. Getting through it is more likely to be the goal. But oh, don't we all hope that when Christmas is over this year, this year, we won't just take everything down and go back to normal. Having grown tired of the music, the overload of sweets, and the need for the routine to return. So what's the problem? Well, I think at least in part, it boils down to a simple realization. Advent is largely missing. Advent is the time when God shakes our box. The season of Advent in our liturgical year has a very real purpose. It is meant to create anticipation, waiting, examination, repentance, and making ready. We've learned over the centuries that as Christians, we need to set aside a period of time to consider the full significance of what Christ has done. We call it Advent. And the meaning and full joy of Christmas will always be out of our reach until we do the work. Just so you know, our John the Baptist arrived on the scene to shake our box. He arrived looking like a crazy wild man, dressed in camel hair and eating locust and wild honey. We find him out in the wilderness. Now remember, Jerusalem is the center of power and the temple is the center of faith and the law. How odd, how odd that John would do his ministry all the way out there in the wilderness. Now remember, the wilderness was where God's people were shaped. With 40 years of trust and failure, trust and idolatry, trust and complaining, John centers his work in the wilderness to remind them of their roots and their humanness. And when he does, you can see the dirty laundry floating all over the Jordan River. 
as the washing goes on, that's when our Pharisees show up. The Pharisees are a political interest group with a holy agenda for Israel. They've got the power. Claiming that their bloodline not only makes them the in-crowd, but gives them the right to say who's out. John, who is a threat to their way of doing church, and especially to the power they had over the people of Israel, shows up and turns the tables. So when the Pharisees head out to the wilderness to confront him about his baptism, John pulls out some fighting words. You brood of vipers, you slithery snakes. God's children could be made from stones. The axe is being set at the root of your tree because you aren't producing the fruit. Useless is too kind a word and the fire needs to be set on your trash. John says, I've come to baptize people so that they recognize and confess their sin. Because just you wait, just you wait when Jesus comes, he's bringing the baptism of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit is going to fall on them like fire. The one coming will teach us to live into the baptism of God's will. And that's what baptism looks like in heaven. That's the package left under our tree. So what does repentance mean? John calls us to repentance not to promote guilty feelings, nor to make us feel abysmally sorry for our sins. Hear that again. John calls us to repentance, not to promote guilty feelings or make us feel sorry for our sins. We can do that job all by ourselves. Repentance is what we do to remember that our lives have been hidden in Christ. Don't forget that the first public word out of John's mouth was the Greek imperative verb metanoite, which literally means change your mind or go beyond your mind. Unfortunately, the fourth century When the Greek was then translated into Latin, St. Jerome translated the word as repent, initiating a host of connotations that have changed the understanding of the Gospels ever since. The word metanoite is talking about a primal change of mind, a worldview, a way of data processing, of vision, and only then is it appropriate for repentance to apply to our behavior. This common misunderstanding of repentance puts the cart before the horse. 
As a result, our faith tradition has made repentance about behavior and not about God's desire to get into our hearts and minds. Faith has been reduced to a set of requirements that need to be enforced. And the Pharisees of the day and the Pharisee within us no longer needs God's presence nor God's leadership or wisdom. Isn't sin saying, God, I've got this? This week, a friend of mine who pays attention to Facebook sent me a post from December 5th of 1943. It's a view of Auschwitz and it's a remembering of 1,200 prisoners that came in from the Flossenburg camp. Along the way, 258 prisoners died. That's about the number of us sitting right here. They were supposed to go to a gas chamber, but instead they went to a quarantine camp. And as they poured out, they selected 80 of the weakest and left them lying in the ice and snow of the lumber yard. And the camp commander ordered that cold water be poured on them as they were left through the night. Now we can't imagine there being another time like that. And yet in the news this week, wasn't there the film from the May 19th event in South Texas where a 16-year-old Guatemalan migrant was seriously ill when immigration agents put him in a small cell with another sick child? A nurse diagnosed him as having the flu and a 103 temperature. She instructed the guards to check on him every two hours and to take him to the emergency room if it got worse and it never happened. The next morning, he was dead. This week, 107 graves were desecrated with swastikas at a Jewish cemetery in the northeast part of France. And a report of 629 Christian Pakistani women and girls were sold to men in China for wives. Their Christian families sold them. Is it any wonder that Advent arrives with John standing big and wild, shaking us out of our comfort zone? And it's no wonder we just rather script skip Advent and go right to shopping, carols, lights, and holiday joy. I beg you to hear without Advent, without the time we need to reset our minds to get ready for Christ, then we have just gotten ready for Christmas and we've missed the coming of Christ saying anything about John the Baptist and repentance during Advent can sound an awful lot like scolding, like somehow we aren't doing Advent properly. So, no scolding allowed. 
none at all. What we are invited to do, though, is create a space, the time, the opportunity to go beyond our minds, to imagine that the emptying of our hearts, which is what confession does, praying that the shaking of our proverbial box might open us to the potential of an unexpected gift. So shake the box, shake away. Would you be willing to trust a God you cannot control? Would we be willing to trust a God that isn't transactional? Meaning, I do this for God and God keeps me safe, secure, happy, and successful. Would we be willing to walk with a God whose ways are so different than our comfort zone? Would we once again lean on this God who makes impossible demands of us and promises only his presence? Could we trust that faithfulness looks more like an endless, bumbling, stumbling, wandering, feeling our way in the dark ordeal, which is anything but safe and predictable, but is absolutely the way of faithfulness where the Holy Spirit can set us on fire. Would we be willing to hear John asked us to go beyond our minds and come up from the waters of repentance and confession, sputtering, just itching ready to see what happens when God shows up. If we are, then maybe it's time to take a different approach to Advent. What if, instead of suggesting we have less tradition, less preparation or celebration, we saw this, this Advent as an invitation to do more, to add more peace, more joy, more patience, more grace, more trust, more everything. What if we challenged ourselves to have grander hopes and bigger prayers as we allow the Holy Spirit to baptize us with such things as empathy and humility, which is nothing more than a definition of the literally literal opening of our hearts and minds? An article in Psychology Today written by trauma expert Bruce Perry says in his book entitled Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. Empathy underlies virtually everything that makes the world work, like trust, altruism, collaboration, love, charity. 
failure to empathize is a key part of most of our problems. Crime, violence, war, racism, child abuse, inequity, gossip, prejudice, just to name a few. All of that is what the stuff is made of that John calls us today to confess. So that empathy becomes the umbrella which broadly involves sensitizing ourselves to others' feelings and circumstances and humanness. It's the ability to see each other as real instead of categorizing each other into issues. Cognitive empathy is this kind of empathy that consciously adopts another person's perspective and tries to walk around in their shoes for a bit, feeling and thinking our way through as if it were part of our lives. Effective empathy is the kind that says, when you cry, what are those tears are feeling? When you're confused or wondering, how lost do you really feel? Did you see the evening news on Friday? A simple story about a woman who decided to leave snacks for the delivery drivers went viral. She puts out this little basket of things to choose from, and wouldn't you know, the camera on her doorbell catches this guy coming up going, oh, isn't this nice, and how sweet, and he, he rummages through and picks out the thing that he wants, and he literally dances back to his truck. way. The prison ministry that we're a part of is joining Cards for Christ in an effort to reach every inmate in the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction with the love of Jesus Christ through a simple Christmas card. During a time when being in prison is the most difficult time of year for their lives. They're looking for 50,000 cards, and the small groups in this church have already been working on them. Jim Klein, after service, said this morning that he and Judy often buy Christmas cards, and they put uh, a little money in them, and they hide them throughout the store and simply say, be nice to somebody today. Forgive someone. Know that you're loved. Empathy. The willingness to stand in another's shoes for a moment. To give the gift of grace. It's the thing that changes us from the inside and changes those around us. I would dare say it changes the world. And then would we consider growing in humility? Not only in our personal view, but in our worldview. 
Researchers have suggested that humble people have a more accurate understanding and view of themselves. They're able to acknowledge their mistakes and limitations. They open up their minds to the viewpoints and ideas of others, keeping their accomplishments and abilities in perspective, having a low personal focus, and appreciating the value of everything. Not just people, but their culture and our environment. Everything that God has made, most especially God's children. Humility is recognizing that nothing and no one is disposable without cost. Did you catch this week that school children in Kent County, Michigan took a trip to the courthouse? It was because a kindergartner in their class had been fostered for about a year and they decided to adopt Michael Clark Jr. He's an ornery little guy, busy, 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 who showed up and the wealthy elementary school in East Grand Rapids. And the school recognized that these were 40-year-old first-time parents who might need a family. So they took this family and Michael in to their love. Carrie McKee, who's the teacher, said that they found out on Halloween that his adoption date was December 5th. So they decided as a class to figure out how to get everybody to the courtroom. They showed up with pink big hearts glued to uh, rulers all under their little smiling faces. And, and when they got there, she goes on to say that, that how hard it was to figure out to get them there. They were too late to get a bus to call for it. And so she wrote the parents, and 14 of 23 said, we'll take the day off and take them. Who wants to put children in your car? So they go, well, maybe we still need a bus. And so she went back to the bus department and said, can you, can you help us? No, what's it for? When they explained, the driver said, I'll drive for free. This whole conspiracy of open-minded, embracing love took 18 little buggers and their teachers to sit with a foster child. And can't you imagine that the whole court and the judge was a mess? So here's the question that John and Advent ask. Will you trust that Christ is and wants to be more deeply involved in the work of your life? Will you trust that confession is all about opening our hearts and our minds and that it gives us the start that we need 
Will we trust that the very Spirit of God will fall upon us so that Christ is as alive today as at his birth or on the day of his resurrection? If you'll try that, if you'll shake that box, this will not be an ordinary advent if you can trust the shaking of the box of confession, waiting to see what bubbles up, filled with empathy and humility, which is just another way of saying God's grace and God's kind of love. Then this will be no ordinary Christmas. And I suspect it could last us all year. So let God shake your box. You shake the God box you've got. Go ahead. Shake it hard. Christ is coming. Amen. Would you pray with me?